Hello, I'm Emma Louise Coffey, and you're welcome to the Dairy Edge, the Chagas Dairy Podcast. We're bringing you the latest information, insights, and opinion to improve dairy farm performance. On this week's episode, dairy farmer Michael Dorn documents the events that culminated in him converting from dry stock to dairy farming and his advice for anyone looking to go down the same route. Michael started by recalling his early years in farming. I went to Rockwell Agricultural College in 1993, spent a year there. It was probably the best year that I had in my life. Um, Three of us shared a room. Uh, Three of us have been very friendly since. Um, Had a great experience down in Rockwell. Uh, Got beef shooting of the year when I was down there. Um, Went on then uh, and was runner-up in the National Student of the Year a couple of years later. Um, farming was always something that I was madly passionate about, um, and I think that's why Rockwell suited me so well, because it was just totally agricultural-related. Um, came back home straight away in 1994, um, helping out on the farm at home, started farming in my own right then in 2001, um, where my mother took the early retirement scheme on some of the farm, and I started farming that, along with farming beside my father as well. So when I came home, there was uh, about 50 suckler cows on the farm. There was 75 yews and about 30 acres of grain. And over the years then, I would have built it up. Um, we peaked around 125 sucklers and between 250 to 270 yews. And the tillage used to fluctuate anywhere between the 30 and 100 acres, um, depending on we had leased some land, we were renting some land, and it all depended on what was available at the time, like, you know. Um, so working hard, um, trying to do things right and trying to maximize anything that we could from schemes, from the farm, from doing everything as best we could. And I suppose would have started out in Mokra and as time moved on, got involved a little bit in IFA and eventually ended up as National Livestock Chairman in IFA in 2008. Um, and I suppose for someone who hadn't gone to college, IFA was probably the third level education that I didn't get um, bar the year in Rockwell uh, because you were involved, whether it was in going down to Roscommon and meeting guys in Roscommon Mart or Elfin Mart to maybe meeting the commissioner for agriculture out in Brussels. Uh, it could be all on the same day um, to be in the Taoiseach's office. There was a lot of things happening. WTO um, was big at the time, um, you know, so there was a lot of threats facing the industry. So I suppose I had a, a great understanding of the beef sector. It was always what I was passionate about, and that's where my heart always was. Um, so, you know, that was that was where I was involved on the farm, pushing everything to the limit, um, maximizing stocking rate. Uh, started measuring grass then in 2008. Um, at the same time as well, uh, as become an IFA Livestock Chair. Um, got involved as Jerry Boyle, the director of Chagas, asked me to chair the stakeholder group, uh, the beef stakeholder group in Grange. So got to see what was happening up there um, very closely and get involved with it. I was uh, instrumental in setting up the Dairy Patrick herd there. Um, it had a rocky start, but has been doing very well since. Um, you know, so... Anywhere that I could gain knowledge, I always went seeking it. Um, and I wasn't afraid to ask uh, if there was something that I needed to know. Um, you know, I, I didn't mind traveling to find it out, uh, to educate myself or asking the people that I built up uh, acquaintances with over the years. 
And, and Michael, like you've documented, I suppose, your your, far, your early farming career, and it's fairly synonymous with beef, dry stock, and a little bit of tillage, as you mentioned early on. And, you know, you're dairy farming now. Talk us through the steps that led to, I suppose, culminating in new milking cows on your farm. Um, yeah, Adrian van Westerbult was over in Ireland back. I remember being up in Grange a few times, um, doing a lot of work around grass and, you know, trying to educate um, maybe those of us on the beef side on uh, grass and what grass actually was. We just presumed it was something that grew out in the field, like, you know, and you just turned animals into grazing or whatever. I remember when I started grazing and measuring grass first, like I was grazing covers of 3,000, um, three, three and a half thousand. Um, and I thought that that's where it needed to be to ensure that when the animals went in, they had enough grass to do a week. Um, you know, so it took a lot of education to actually understand grass and how grass grows um, and I remember having a long chat uh, with him just about grass the grass plant the tree leaves this was all new to me like you know I had never in all my time uh, in college or whatever like you know it had never it was something new so I was fascinated by that and he was just asking me my background would I consider dairy farming um, and I said well when I left ag college I did actually make a, a request to Wexford Creamery about uh, converting or going to milk cows because, you know, when we're in Rockwell, it was always the most profitable enterprise that was there. Um, and at the time I was offered uh, or was told that I would uh, qualify for a thousand gallons of a milk quota. So obviously that wasn't uh, something that was going to encourage someone just fresh out of uh, back home farming into dairy farming. So it was something that I probably was maybe anti, if anything, um, you know, and I was always very passionate about beef. But I suppose he asked me a direct question, like, you know, would I ever consider dairy farming? And I said, no, not really. And he said, it's something that you should think about. But he said, don't do it until quotas are abolished. And at this stage, when I was talking to him, the first of the new entrants were starting, they were qualifying, getting the 200,000 litres um, were coming through. But he said, don't do it until um, quotas are abolished, because he said, you'll be too frustrated that you won't be able to maximize your potential and you'll be hindered by the 200,000 litres. So I suppose that was, to me, an excuse not to actually explore it any further and didn't um, 100% pursued beef, um, very passionate about it, started doing bull beef, started doing under 16-month bull beef. Um, and then I suppose when my time finished in IFA, um, there was different people saying, oh, would you consider running for president? Would you consider going involved in other roles within IFA? And I suppose it was always something that I, at the back of my mind, I said, yeah, it's something I'd like to give a shot at at some stage. But I suppose my mother got sick around that time as well. Um, so I was at home, you know, I was the eldest. I was home farming. The others were still in, um, you know, they were going their own ways um there was i had a sister that was uh teaching in a local primary school so she would be calling in out every evening but you know i suppose the onus was a little bit back on me um so you know i think after four years of a lot of time away you know i just wanted that time to to spend at home um and at the same time then uh, a number of months later then James our middle child was born with down syndrome um and spent a lot of his first year in in Crumlin um spent 100 days in ICU um from November 2013 um not 2012 sorry 
Uh, and I suppose it was during that time when you're in ICU, just very little you can do. He's hooked up on heart machines. Um, and I started just, we were talking about profit monitors and beef at the time in Grange. And I started Googling just dairy profit monitors. And I actually couldn't believe actually the level of performance at the top people within dairy were achieving. Um, and I suppose I was always picture myself as being in, within the top 10, 20% within beef. Um, and I was saying that, you know, if I could even achieve only to be in the top 50% in dairy, the difference that it would actually make to our income. And I suppose Kira was working with in Chagas as a TriStock advisor, and she um, had to apply for a career break at the time to look after James, uh, and has since had to uh, leave Chagas um, just to be able to be at home full time with James. So I suppose the, the pressure was coming on that the family farm now was actually going to have to provide 100%. Uh, there wasn't going to be an off farm income. Um, and that really was the honest that, uh, you know, to, to consider dairy farming. Milk quotas were very close to being abolished. We applied for the 200,000 litres and was successful in getting that. And I suppose that was just the start then of, um, you know, the journey uh, into dairy farming. Zero experience before I actually done it. Um, had both parents were sick. Um, James was only very young with a lot of health complications in and out of hospital and at the same time I was making a decision to actually change direction on the farm so you know to say that I had time to actually think about what we were doing you know it it was really with the assistance of two or three people within Chagas that I got very friendly with over the years um, and the guidance that they were offering me helped to steer me along the right path. And you mentioned zero experience, Michael, and, and you know, you, you have a couple of people that you've identified that have helped you along the way. But what is the starting point? So you're in dry stock, um, no dairy experience. Where do you start? Yeah, I think really people need to spend a little bit of time going around milking cows in a few different parlours. Uh, and it's probably more to identify people that are very successful at what they're doing that they would like to replicate rather than going to a farmer that's next door to them or whatever pick someone that you would see as being successful and say i'd like to be able to achieve what they're achieving how are they doing it you know and i think farmers in general are very open to sharing and to helping and encouraging um you know and that's what i uh i had a friend who i converted a few years before that um, you know, you were ringing him with stupid questions, but there were things that he had experienced only a few years previous to that himself, was very open. And that's what I found, you know, that uh, got involved with a very good discussion group. Um, and I think that was key, just uh, people who were very open and very encouraging uh, and allowing you to ask the questions that maybe you're a little bit nervous about asking, but you know, that they didn't laugh at you, they didn't jeer at you, and they wanted to encourage you along, like, you know. So that was really, I suppose, for me, it was key just to, to identify people that I wanted to, I suppose, replicate, uh, and people that were open and willing to, to be honest and not tell you what you wanted to hear. And I guess, as you say, they might have felt like stupid questions, but, I mean, as you say, the farmer that had done it a few years previously actually had the same questions and the, and, and the same struggles that you might have started out with. So, Michael, looking then at the financial investment involved in converting from beef to dairy, what sort of investment did you have to make? I suppose I was lucky in that we had slurry storage on the farm for 300 animals. Um, we had 80 cubicles. We had a lot of straw lie back sheds. 
So that allowed me at least not have to worry about slurry storage initially on the farm. Um, and, you know, so it was primarily just a milking parlour is all we needed to construct. And we decided to go greenfield. We had looked at the options of using existing sheds or using going on a greenfield site adjoining the farmyard. And we chose the latter um, because, you know, to go in an existing shed, we were always compromising on something. And I think it was just allowing us the opportunity to build a building that was going to be fit for purpose for 15, 20 years without having to actually make any changes to it. And I, I think it has stood the test of time. Um, we're on our seventh season and there's very little that I would change from the initial layout and the, the design of the building. So, you know, I think that's... A lot of people that I see trying to put a parlour into an existing shed and they're coming back three or four years later and it's dead money because they're having to either extend it, put in a new, um, or the tank is in the way or there's something in the way that's hindering their, their ability then. And for the sake of actually borrowing a small little bit of extra day one um, and going with, you know, with the, with the availability of TAMS grants, um, especially for young trained farmers, top-ups, partnerships there's loads of ways that people can actually maximize um grants available to them you know and i think get the basics right um and it need only be a basic starting out you can add the bells and whistles a lot of people go in and say oh i need to have this that and the other but they're comparing themselves to someone who's milking cows for 20 years it's chalk and cheese like you know so um any milking parlor will milk a cow they're all proven to milk cows um, and it's up to you then what you're prepared to, how hard you want to work initially. And I prefer to be actually working for myself rather than be working for the bank and struggling to meet repayments because I overspent day one. And some of the things that people put in, they don't actually need, you know, so you've invested a lot of money on something that you don't need, whereas there might be something that you realize down the line yourself, well, no, if I had that, I'd be able to do it. And at least if you're not overburdened by debt, you have the flexibility to do that in time then. And, and and you mentioned the burden of debt. Like, where does that sit with you, Michael? This would have been the biggest financial investment you would have made on farm since the, the start of your career. I suppose um, prior to converting, if I had debt anywhere above €100,000, it would have actually tormented me from the point of view of the repayment capacity. And just, I always felt that it was something that was, you know... Um, they are in the background and that needed to be paid off. Um, and I suppose what I would say to anyone is whatever debt you're comfortable with as a beef farmer, if you multiply it by five, that's the level of where you should be comfortable with debt on a dairy farm. And actually, that's a lot easier to handle as a dairy farmer than it is as a beef farmer at five times the exposure of what you'd be. So, you know, I suppose it's where people are comfortable. Um, I have friends that are borrowed to a couple of million and it doesn't bother them at all. I've other people that uh, once they go over 50 or 60,000, it torments them like, you know, and it, you know, you know by them that there's a bit of anxiety there. So I think you have to understand what you're comfortable with yourself. And then there's milking machines that will, you know, secondhand, there's various options that are available for people that can fit that budget then from there. You know, so it's about looking at what are the priorities? What do I need? You need the slurry storage, you need a bulk tank, you need the machine. You know, and then it's after that, a lot of them are bells and whistles. Uh, a lot of them can be labor-saving advices. Um, but, you know, just get the basics right and then just uh, you can add on to them in time over that. Or if you have the, the benefit of having grants available to you, 
um, you know, it, it, it does make it an awful lot easier starting out. So looking then to day one, Michael, what did the farm look like when you started milking cows? Looking at herd size and I suppose the, the picture of the farm at that point. I suppose we were lucky when we were sourcing our stock in late 2013. Um Everyone was under pressure with quota. Uh, we managed to buy 18 calf heifers from two farmers. Um, we went with all crossbred animals when we when we set out. And I suppose that was another part of the journey that uh, a lot of people couldn't believe. Like, you know, that uh, someone coming from a beef background started off with crossbred animals. I'll touch on that in a minute. But... Yeah, we sold 60 autumn calf and cows. We calved them down and sold them with their calves. And we bought 80 in-calf heifers and we had about €30,000 left over um, initially. So that was a, a good bonus to help uh, with um, the building work and going into the milking parlour at the time. So it, uh, we started off um, a lot of pressure on and trying to get the... We got allocated the quota in late August in 2013 we got grant approval didn't arrive until Christmas Eve 2013 so we couldn't actually start fitting the parlour we started building uh, a digger came on site in late September um, but we couldn't actually start fitting the parlour the tank or anything like that until the new year in 2014 uh, and the first animal calf down on the 20th of January so you know there was a lot of pressure on um, and I think you know, for anyone doing it, give themselves more lead time into it. Like, you know, it's, uh, we were trying to do too much work in too short a space of time. Like, you know, and it did, it did put a lot of extra pressure on. We were actually tired and burned out before we actually started calving that year due to the pressure of actually trying to get everything completed in time. Um, once we started calving, um, we still had the spring calving sucklers to calf that year as well. But we delayed the bull going with them for a month, so we actually calved down the heifers first. Um, the first time I used calving jack was actually when the sucklers started calving. They all calved themselves. Um, everyone had told me I was in for the absolute horrors from um, heifers calving down, trying to train heifers, no parlor ready, no cows to go with them. Like It, it just wasn't possible. A lot easier than lamb and sheep. Um, I would no issue going back and calving down 200 heifers tomorrow morning. Um, if I was given a choice of having 200 heifers and putting through a milking parlour or lamb and 200 yos lambs, I'd take the 200 heifers, no problem. Because once they go through for two or three days, you train them up and they'll settle down. And, and, and bring us back then to these, you know, selecting crossbreds as your heifer of choice. You know, you're used to a bigger square type cow in sucklers and yeah. then you went to crossbreds, probably the smallest cow in the country. I suppose when I was... In beef, what I was looking at was what was the most appropriate animal for what I was trying to achieve. And I was trying to achieve initially 500 kilo carcasses, but that was gradually eroding back to 440, 450, maybe even 420. You know, so I was looking at an animal that could produce that sort of a carcass at 16, 18, 20 months of age. Um, so what was what was the type of animal that would do that? So we had cemental cross, Charlet limousine, um, you know, as the type of cows that we had on the farm. Um, and using bulls appropriate to what was needed. Um, and I suppose when I went down to Moor Park and started to just talk to some of the, the researchers down there about it, um, I would have went down with the vision of that it had to be a black and white cow, it had to be a big cow, you know, and I was looking at the calf value. But when I started looking through business plans and seeing the value of the calf 
and the actual replacement rates that are needed in the various different systems, um, when to look at the various different farm systems in Park, it became very obvious to me that I was actually very blinkered in what I was looking at and that, uh, you know, the more appropriate animal for what I wanted to do, if I wanted to be, I would have always viewed myself as a grass farmer because that was the resource that we had. So what was going to maximize that grass into money in the bank for me? And it was the decision to, to go across Breton um, was made at that juncture. And talk through the process and how that has evolved over time. You know, what are you, say, using in terms of sires at the moment? And, you know, what do you see the future of that being? I suppose up until this is the first year, 2020 is the first year that we didn't use any uh, Jersey semen when we're inseminating this year. Um, we have a, we've been using Jersey right along up to now. Um, and I suppose primarily why we didn't use any this year is that, uh, you know, I'm still questioning some of the EBIs of some of the Jersey bulls that are there. I still firmly believe in what the, the crossbreeding has to offer. Um, but I think we have enough crossbred in the herd at the moment um, to get us through. I think crossbreeding and uh, sex semen are going to go hand in hand in the future. Um, we used about 56 straws this year. Um, not overly happy, with, I haven't scanned yet, but given the number of repeats, not overly happy with the results that have come with them. Some people are getting fantastic results and I think I need to see that fine tuning first uh, and then I'd be prepared to go back with more jersey. Um, but I suppose the level, the, the crossbreeding that we have, it's given us uh, fantastic fat and protein percentages, given us good solids, and that's what we're selling, and that's what we're getting paid for. Um, fantastic calving intervals, um, a strong, robust cow as well. Um, right, we're taking a hit on our calf value, we're taking our kit on a cold cow value, but we've been running at less than 5% empty um, since we started on a 12-week breeding season. So, you know, the, the replacement, is not an issue from the point of view of the culls that are going out. Um, we don't have a massive number of them. This year we kept all the calves um, and uh, we sold them once they were reared in June. Um, you know, so we were actually, rather than going out when there was a lot of calves coming, any of them that were appropriate and were saleable at that stage, we, we sold. Um, but the rest of them we held until June and then there was loads of actually customers available. Once they heard that the calves were weaned, they actually weren't concerned what the background to them was just the fact that they were weaned that they were ready to go to grass and uh, you know the hard labour part was of rearing them was, was over so I think that's something that we'll actually explore a bit more going forward is just actually ensuring that we have uh, plenty of facilities plenty of help on the farm for the spring just to rear the calves um, and you know sell them then at a later stage so I think I think there's a couple of interesting things that you have said and you've taken, so I suppose, some insight from your beef background and into dairy in terms of what you want your animal to do is what you're going to select in terms of the appropriate cow. And I think you're probably not so um, particular on the colour of the cow. You're just looking for her to do the job in terms of going back in calf and delivering the solids. Um, looking then to the farm now, so you calved down with 80 heifers in year one. This is year seven now. What are things looking like today? Yeah, I suppose for the last couple of years, um, we've calved between 260 and 270 animals. We've milking 240 animals um, now for three years. Uh, and I think that's what the farm is comfortable at. Um, it's three cows per hectare on the milking platform. Um, the milking platform, we have to walk 350 metres on the road to get to part of it. You know, so that's why I'm not prepared to push it 
um, higher than what that stocking rate is at the moment um, because I think it's very comfortable and very easy to manage at that. Um, we're very lucky in that we, you know, we're by the coast with a good early grass grown season. Um, I would view that we have a very good grass grown farm. Um, we've been averaging 17 tonne or thereabouts for the last number of years. 2018 did hit us in the drought, um, but we were lucky in that we did have a reserve of silage left over from the previous year coming into it. Um, and I think that reserve wasn't big enough. And I think the lesson we learned from that is that we need a bigger reserve. So subsequently we built an extra silage pit uh, and filled it. You know, So we do have bigger reserves on the farm now going forward. But I think that's key, like is how much grass are you growing and then working back from there. Um, for a lot of years, we only fed two, 300 kilos a meal. We have, I suppose, increased it. Um, we'll probably feed maybe 700 kilos a meal this year. It's not something that, um, you know, I get too worked up about. Uh, I suppose the target I would have is about five, 600 kilos. Um, maybe I fed a bit too little in some years, um, but I, I don't see the need for feeding meal if you can have good grass in, in front of the cows. Like last year, we f- we sold uh, four eighty two kilos of solids per cow, um, four eight nine fat, and three eight four on protein. Um, you know, so the breeding that's there and the grassland management is uh, allowing us to maximise the the solids and uh, the fat and proteins that are coming, along with uh, coming in a three and a half percent empty rate. You know, so I think it's about getting the balance of everything. Um, some people push to achieve liters. But I think in pushing to achieve leaders, you actually, you know, you're pulling back on somewhere else, like, you know, so it's about finding tuning the system. Um, I don't want to be the number one in the group when you start comparing figures on X, Y or Z, like, you know, but I just want to balance overall in that it's a simple system, but that it's uh, it's repeatable year after year. Looking then to, I, I suppose, the journey over the last seven or eight years, I would say from listening to you today, Michael, Adrian van Weistervelt, um probably planted a seed and, and maybe this was always going to be something that would happen to the farm eventually. But as you say, personal circumstances, um, I suppose, pushed on that decision for you. Was it the right decision? Oh, no question. It was the right decision. And I think uh, without the abolition of quota and without James being born, I don't think it was, a de- it was a decision I would have made initially at all. Like, you know, maybe I'll be making it now at this stage because the way the beef industry has actually evolved for the last couple of years, I think it's getting harder and harder. Um, 2013, when I was actually lodging my planning application, I sold heifers and I averaged 520 cent a kilo for them. You know, they're about 350, 360, 370 for the last 12 months is what they've been averaging. Like, you know, so um, beef was at its height when I was converting and it was still the right decision to make. Um, And I think it's the right decision for a lot of people that are making decisions at the moment as well. Um, You know, so I think maybe I was pushed a little bit faster into making the decision, um, but it has allowed me to do an awful lot of things that I would have never been able possible to do before. Excluding this year, we've spent two, three weeks in France for the last number of years in July. Um, we've bought land beside us. Um, we've been al- able to do a lot of more development work on the farm. Um, you know, things that were a sort of, yeah, maybe next year if we have a good year, we'll be able to do it. But, you know, you have the flexibility to do it now and know that you can do it. Um, I suppose that the most important thing to me, I think, was getting involved with good discussion groups. Um, and uh, the cost control planner. 
I think completing that on a yearly basis allows me at the start of the year to actually understand and see what the picture is going to be for the year. And then depending on how milk price is going, you have a, a very good feeling as to, well, will I have surplus cash that I can actually do something with? Um, and if there is, well, then, you know, you have that flexibility to do it. But you know in advance where that is and when that's going to be like, you know, and I think that, that that's been super. But I think I can't emphasize enough just the, the discussion group and the members of the discussion group, just how important a role that they play. Um, we formed a, a new entrant discussion group. Um, Abigail Ryan was forming one around the greenfield at the same time that we were converting. Uh, and that has been instrumental in actually helping us to to keep focused on the business and especially in the early years, just uh, the important role that that had to play, um, whether it was the breeding season, what are the KPIs that we should be focusing on, um, grass at the various different times, the spring rotation planner, the autumn budget, all the different things that were alien to us. But by having a good group that was focused on it, that was all at the same level, you know, really helped. We all brought each other along and we still are like, you know, and uh, the development of WhatsApp, you know, people without the facilitator now are actually able to help each other along and guide them like, which is, which is great. And I suppose the, the three pieces of advice that I was given when I was um, converting was to um, talk to other new entrants that have gone through the process because they understand what you're doing um, and they'll be very open and honest with you. Um, a good discussion group and the role of that and the third person and I laughed when I was t- when the person told me but a trusted dairy farmer but not just a trusted dairy farmer a good trusted dairy farmer that you prepare to send your wife away on holidays with someone that you knew that was going to do the right thing and tell you the right thing and not tell you what you wanted to hear and I think that has really you know looking back I can see now how important that person was and I think I've I'd like to think that I've actually filled that role for other people over the years since then. Um, you know, because a lot of people, you know, they would pick up the phone and say, look, you've gone through it. You know, am I right to do it? Is it the right thing to do? You know, and you try to encourage them and try to help them along the way because they don't mind when you ask the silly question and they're not going to say, ah, look at him. He, something is after going wrong. Like, you know, he's not celebrating the fact that something gone wrong. He's looking for a solution to help you. And I think that's key just to have someone that will be honest and will tell you and help you along the way. I, I think, Michael, we've had a super chat today and I've taken a lot from it. I think you've highlighted people in a lot of ways. Um, you know, you, you've mentioned the discussion group and the importance of it, both Abigail as facilitator and the other members, also the trusted farmers and the network that you build around yourself. I suppose also to acknowledge the people that are working on the farm because it's not so simple to take two Mm. or three weeks holidays without having a good team behind you. As well as that, I think that you've highlighted some of the, I suppose, foot up you can get where you're in beef. So the beef stock are actually going to pay for the dairy stock. And I suppose, too, you've emphasized the importance of getting that right on day one. I also think an interesting thing that you've mentioned that we don't always hear, but it's, you know, there is a big investment and it's important that people know their limits. So you don't have to go out and start off by borrowing the millions if that's something that isn't going to sit well with you, you know, in the long term, because, you know, it, it's potentially a 10 to 15 year investment in terms of paying it off. And I also think 
thinking finally then in terms of your business planning, being realistic and, you know, maybe being very prudent in terms of the figures and then smashing the targets that you set yourself year to year. Under promise, but try to over deliver is the motto that I would have at the back of my mind. Like, you know, I think that's key. But I think the other key is just invest in the right stock. I think, you know, spend time understanding, especially for new entrants, what you're trying to look for understand the EBI there's plenty of good stock out there but to just try and actually look and ensure that the stock that you're investing in they're the foundation stock that will be with you for the next 10-15 years that's super thank you Michael thanks Emma Louise that's it for this week's episode of the Dairy Edge podcast and my thanks to Michael Dorn for joining me on this week's show don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the podcast You can listen on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. And for more information, go to the Chagas website at chagas.ie. I'm Emma-Louise Coffey and join me next time for your Dairy Edge.